Coming soon in the spring of 2024, Dr. Paul Zeitz, physician, epidemiologist, and tenacious award-winning advocate for global justice and human rights, will be releasing his groundbreaking handbook, Revolutionary Optimism, Seven Steps for Living as a Love-Centered Activist. Revolutionary optimism galvanizes us on the path of self-liberation and invites us to unify with others to catalyze our collective liberation. Together, we can create a brighter tomorrow for all humanity, all life on Earth, and for all future generations. Stay tuned for information on how to pre-order your copy. Revolutionary Optimism, Seven Steps for Living as a Love-Centered Activist. Coming soon to inspire you. It's go time! Welcome to Revolutionary Optimism. Living at this time in history, we are challenged with the convergence of crises that is affecting our daily lives. Issues like economic hardship, a teetering democracy, and the worsening climate emergency have left many Americans feeling more despair than ever. To respond to the challenging times we are living through, physician, humanitarian, and social justice advocate Dr. Paul Zeitz has identified revolutionary optimism as a new cure for hopelessness, despair, and cynicism. Once you commit yourself as a revolutionary optimist, you can bravely unleash your personal power, hashtag unify with others, and accelerate action for our collective repair, justice, and peace. On this podcast, Dr. Zeitz is working to provide you with perspectives from leaders fighting for equity, justice, and peace on their strategies, insights, and tools for overcoming adversity and driving forward revolutionary transformation with unbridled optimism and real-world pragmatism. In this episode, Dr. Zeitz is talking with Rivera Sun, an acclaimed author, activist, and educator known for her passionate commitment to social justice and nonviolent activism. With a deep understanding of the power of peaceful resistance, Rivera has dedicated her work to inspiring positive change in the world. Her books and writings explore the transformative potential of nonviolent movements, providing insights that empower individuals and communities to create a more just and equitable society. Here's your host. Dr. Paul Zeitz. I have been immersing myself in your writings, but I wanted to start off with a question about you personally. Like, how did you uh, become an activist? How did you get involved with nonviolent movement building? Back in 2011, when Occupy happened, uh, I was living in a little town called Santa Cruz, California, and the Occupy encampment actually happened right across the street from my high rent location where I lived. Uh, So I had a lot of empathy, but not much knowledge about uh, participating in protests, but it was unavoidable, undeniable. So I was out there across the street, although I would go home to sleep in my bed, not camp out with Occupy. Um, But coming out of that experience, it really made me think about this was amazing. It was extraordinary. It challenged so much. It broke through so many um, kind of lies and misperceptions about wealth and inequality in the U.S. And I left that wondering how to do it even better, how Hmm. to organize successful movements. So I started poking around. And at about the same time, I started writing my novel, The Dandelion Insurrection, which posited a hidden corporate dictatorship in a slightly fictionalized United States. And I got my characters in a bit of a pickle. I had all the problems laid out, but I didn't know how to solve them. Mm. So like any self-respecting millennial, I Googled it. How to bring down dictators nonviolently. And I thought maybe somebody had written some sci-fi about it. 
Uh, but what came back was 4 million hits on the amazing nonviolent revolutions that have transformed our world in the past 100 years, uh, from the fall of the Soviet Union to the People Power Revolution in the Philippines. And I started learning as much as I could because it seemed like these types of tactics have been a powerful political force uh, in our world. And just like knowing how to drive, it's an essential skill to understand in times like this. Well, that's an amazing story. So the Occupy Movement uh, experience was in 2011, and that like opened up your heart and soul to this pursuit of nonviolent movement building. And now you have been, you're a leading champion of that. You published the Nonviolent News, which is an online resource uh, which I have found very helpful and I have shared with a lot of my movement colleagues uh, regularly since I learned about it. So what were you doing before 2011? Like, <laughs> I, that's like a big leap. And uh, I want to like, uh, we, we want to invite my our listeners to make that leap as well. So like, uh, it's it's interesting maybe for you to share, like, what was going on in your life before that, that you were receptive and open to making that transformation. Yeah, I um, grew up in a politically conscious family. Uh, we ran a small organic farm and started a cooperative of 10 small farms to uh, get local produce into grocery stores in the state of Maine. When I went to school, to college, uh, I decided to be a dance major. Uh, it was the year 2000 when we had a notoriously unjust political election. And like many young people my age, I tuned out. I felt very disempowered by the status quo of politics. I felt like elites were very much in charge of the show and people like me didn't matter very much. Mm. Um, so while I cared passionately about social justice, I didn't know where to put that passion. Um, and I, as I went through college and then went out into the world, I channeled a lot of that into um, the dance and the theater that I was creating. Um, but I didn't really really understand how to participate in social movements. And that's why Occupy was so significant, was it really showed me where people power was found and kind of reactivated and re-energized, not just my, my care and concern for people and planet, but also my curiosity and sense of empowerment about what to do about that care and concern. And so that's, that's how I got on that trajectory. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, from dancing and poetry, uh, and now author and uh, leading activist in nonviolent movements. It's, it's quite a journey. So uh, for my listeners, I think it's a really important opportunity as we're kicking off this new season of revolutionary optimism, and we're entering this exciting year of 2024. I wanted to ask you a series of questions about uh, and ask you to help us make sense or sense-making of what is happening and what is possible uh, during these tumultuous times. I think that our listeners are very much aware of the poly crises that are affecting all of us, the uh, sense of our weakening or collapsing democracy, the climate emergency, the economic inequality, et cetera, et cetera. So, but I think from your perspective, I really want uh, to hear, you know, I've been really uh, digging in on Rise and Resist, which is a series of essays that you've written 
that are drawn from the character in uh, the Dandelion Insurrection, the first of your trilogy, uh, novel trilogy. And you talk about the state of democracy, you know, from the, in this book. And I would like to ask you if you could characterize what your assessment is of the state of our U.S. democracy, like right now. What democracy? What democracy, she says. What democracy? <laughs> you know, and this was probably in 2013 or 14, uh, you know, Jimmy Carter got up and told, told listeners in Europe that, you know, there is no functional democracy in the United States. Hmm. What we functionally have is something called plutocracy, there are a couple other words we could use, oligarchy, but the concepts are the same. It is the rule of the rich and the, the business classes. And in um, around 2014 as well, a, an important study was published at a Princeton called the Princeton Oligarchy Study. And it showed that over a 20-year period, when we look at federal legislation, we, the people, got our way 0.0% of the time on over 2,000 bills that went before Congress in that period. Now, the only caveat to that is when our, our opinions happen to align with those of wealthy individuals or businesses because they were getting stuff through Congress. Hmm. But anytime we the people wanted something that one of those two groups didn't, hmm. we did not get our way. So... We don't have a functional political system that is responsive to the, even the demonstrated will of people. We have a system of government that responds to uh, rich people and business interests. And so there are languages that describe that, plutocracy being one of them, oligarchy being another. Hmm. But democracy is not one of those words. And I think until we really take that seriously as a populace, then we can't even begin to deal with the problem. We can't say, well, what would put people in power? What would make sure that when we express our will, it gets enacted through our political leaders? Um, and this is very much at the core of both the fiction work that I do and some of the activism and organizing that I'm involved in. Yeah, so if I understand you, and I, I, I don't disagree, I actually agree with your assessment. And what I've had to confront for myself, and I just want to check this with you is like, I have to give up the story in my head that I'm living in a powerful democracy. I have to give up the stories from my childhood of the intent of our found our founders, you know, of Betsy Ross sewing that flag and, you know, all these people that were fighting for justice and, you know, liberty and justice for all we pledge, you know. And uh, I have to give all that up and really see, take off the veils of that lie to really get at this root. Is that what you're saying? It's so painful and terrifying, right? I mean, we should always hold on to our aspiration toward democracy. It is a beautiful thing. It is a value to humanity. But I think we have to be realistic about what is going on functionally not the platitudes, not the things that the political parties say every election cycle, um, not the things that we learned in school, but what is functionally happening? Because otherwise we can't make sense of our world. We can't understand why the average citizen is getting poorer and poorer and why the wealthy individuals are getting wealthier and wealthier. We can't understand 
why we can't get decent health care at affordable prices in this country. We can't understand why there's been very little progress made on the climate crisis until you understand that the, the federal government is not responding to the cry of the people. Um, you know, most people don't know this, but we actually have a, a majority consensus in this country on climate action. 60% of this country want immediate climate action. Mm. Is that news to you? I mean, most people don't know this because we're taught it's a divisive issue, mm. but increasingly it is not. Yeah, no, that's a stark uh, reminder of the situation that we're in. And I think it is painful and it is hard for people to wrap their heads around that and to understand the implications of that. What do you think are the implications of that going into this 2024 election? Mm. Well, I think we have to be pragmatic about this election and I meaning that you know, there, there's, there is a difference between the two major candidates who are being brought forward, and there is an even bigger difference between what they represent and what we actually need in this mm. country. So one thing I think a lot about it, when I think about this kind of entrenched stalemate around the federal power is where else does power lie? Where else do decisions get made? Where else do people have the ability to make an immediate and direct impact on their lives, their communities' lives, that of their friends and neighbors? Because when we start to recognize that, we break through the other big myth, which is that only the, the federal legislators uh, and federal powers can save us, mm -hmm. right? Which is not true. Every piece and sector of society, from churches to small businesses to uh, banks and credit unions, to schools and universities, to neighbors um, and community groups, we all have the power to enact change. And we are constantly making those choices one mm. way or another uh, to show up. And I think if we recognize all these source points of power and we start to use them mm. to enact and construct the world that we desperately need, I think we start to find uh, sources of hope where uh, we might feel the opposite um, in considering some of the, the tough things about our federal government. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And uh, I have so many questions, I don't know where to start. <laughs> uh, as a doctor by training, you know, I'm frequently like, I want a diagnosis and then I want solutions, you know, that's kind of how my brain was trained. So I have done a lot of research and uh, we spoke about this a lot on the last season of Revolutionary Optimism about the diagnosis is that we have constitutional rot. Our current constitution was written by white male oligarchs, as you said, uh, who were wrote it to protect their own power and their own control over society and people. And they did that by legalizing slavery and oppression of women and other uh, viable people or strong people living at that time. And uh, while there have been phases of renewal and transformation, like after the Civil War and with the voting, the suffragette movement and even the civil rights movement, those are kind of blips of renewal and transformation. The underlying system of oppression that was established 237 years ago is still working like a charm. 
What do you think of that? Is that right? Do I have that right? Or tell me, uh, I'd love to hear your analysis of the state of our constitutional order. Mm. Well, I, I agree a lot with your historical overview that we have a constitution that was put in place for a reason um, and to empower certain trends of po political organizing, which do not benefit the people. Um, and I think that, you know, the many of the access movements or movements of suffrage have been about trying to gain enough political inclusion so that we have a, a mass of people and representatives in that system in order to transform it or use it in meaningful ways that take care and affirm the people. And it's really a question of, is that possible anymore? Is that going to act swiftly enough for some of the crises that we face? We know mm. with the climate crisis, for example, we don't have an endless timeline. We mm. need that action to come in the next 10 years at most, more mm. like three to five years. Mm, and so, you know, we don't, we have a constitution that favors wealth, it favors corporations at this point, um, it favors money, and it disfavors other interests, uh, no matter how moral or legitimate they are. So I think, you know, there's really a couple strands we need, we need to address that in many ways, we can address access to that system. So the long held vision of, of better representation could be enacted through it. We could address it in terms of what Chile did, which in mm. 2019 had a, a nonviolent, mostly nonviolent movement for a new constitution to overturn the dictatorship era constitution and replace it. We could also, you know, continue to recognize where the other sources of power and organizing lie and continue to build our power in that way. And then we can also have a very robust and meaningful conversation and, um, popular movement, let's say, around what democracy even means. Does it mean voting for people to represent us? Or does it mean making decisions about things that impact our lives? These are, you know, Paul, these are kind of things that I've had, the, like you, I've had this great privilege, which is that I've spent 10 to 12 years reading, writing, and researching about it. When I first wrote Dandelion Insurrection, I got to confront that idea that we have something terribly wrong with our system of government. Yeah. And I got to download that whole list of, of how people have responded to dictatorships and authoritarian regimes. You know, and as I learned more, I got to do the same process of revision and research and inclusion with the roots of resistance and really talk about how do you push back against counter-revolutionary forces? Once you change the powers that be, how do you make sure they stay changed? Yeah. And then ultimately, in the third book, talking about the truly revolutionary core of all this conversation, which is that beyond just changing who's in charge of the system that we've got, how do we change the system so that it is inured against the concentration of power and so that it consistently delivers power back to communities of people who can make wiser decisions together? Yes, exactly. And I, yeah, so... Now we're now we're in 2024. That all that information that you've synthesized and processed and novelized to inspire me and my listeners and many many others with hope and possibility. Uh, I think that's so crucial right now, and I think you've also uh, been unlocking political imagination, which is also 
very limited right now. Most people feel trapped within this in this system. People are frustrated, anxious, despairing. They don't like the choices that are being put before us, but they don't see any way out, you know? And so that's where I have been calling for a peaceful revolution. And I believe that uh, the time has come where that needs to happen. And I want you to challenge me <laughs> or agree, you know, and I want to ask you, my perception is, is that something's going on right now. I, I feel the trembling of a revolution. I have been with the climate activists on the front line protesting, and they feel like there's revolutionary energy uh, that they're tapping into, that young, this young generation is fed up and tired. They've had enough of this uh, all talk and no action environment that we're in and their futures are being jeopardized. Women are now mobilizing. They want to have control over their own bodies and their own reproductive rights. I would say, and men too, support that. Um, and there is, uh, the peace movement is raging forward now to uh, support uh, the rights of the Palestinian people in the face of the violence uh, being perpetrated by the state of Israel, as an example. And the militarism, that the United States propagates around the world. The LGBTQ community is mobilizing to protect their right to marriage and their right to have uh, families as well. The racial equity movement is fed up with their second class status. So I'm like out on the streets, I'm in, you know, I'm in connection with these movements. There's also a thriving democracy movement an ex rapidly expanding uh, democracy movement that really accelerated when Trump was elected in 2016 and has been maturing over the last seven or eight years where there's hundreds of organizations working on social cohesion, local democracy hubs, citizen assemblies, all that kind of thing. So my question for you, and I think you have a chapter in here about are we ready? Are you? Are, do you think we're ready for a peaceful revolution? where we could really mobilize the population to recreate our social contract with our mm. government? I think conditions are certainly ripening for flashpoints. Uh, this is something we know about in social movements, which is that, um, and Occupy was certainly a great example of this, that conditions ripen for a period of time before a trigger event happens. Maybe it was the murder of George Floyd for Black Lives Matter, for example, or the immolation um, of Mohammed Bouazizi in Egypt in 2011. You know, and when we have these ripening conditions, we know it's only a matter of time before that flashpoint happens. The question is, how ready are we to surf that wave when it comes, right, and turn it in, into something really productive, not just mass protest and mass outcry, which is important, but also... Um, strategic movements for change. So I do think conditions are ripening, have been ripening for change. I think this particular election is a really stark reminder that the system is terribly broken and people recognize that. Um, and when frustration levels at the intraction or intractability of political leaders uh, rise, we often see out-of-the-box solutions coming forward. I think the big question when we're talking democracy 
is that democracy is very radical. It's not just the people who agree with all those social justice causes that you just enumerated. There's also the people who disagree with them or who are frightened by them or who are unsure about them mm-hmm. or for whom they are not a priority. And so like peace, which is also a very radical concept, <laughs> uh, if we really want a democracy, we can't just imagine a democracy among the people who already agree with us. We have to think about those practices and the respect with which we treat our own populace and people whether they agree with us or not. And that is very challenging. And maybe one of those necessary ripening conditions, if we want to really take on the political elites, right? If we do not remember the importance of treating people who disagree with us with some basic respect, Mm -hmm. even if they're not ready to do that for us, then we have no business mucking around with what we think we call democracy. Because Mm. democracy is not about getting your way. Mm. Democracy is about working together to come to greater understanding and decisions that work for your fellow citizens. And we're talking 320 plus million people. That's a lot of people, many of whom uh, are fairly divided on, on many issues. Um, and certainly have been told that we are very divided, whether or not we actually are. We do know that we have majority consensus on surprising things like gun control, abortion access, climate action, taxing the rich. And I think that when we remember that, you know, we the people are not actually divided on this, it gives you a lot more hope for the this political revolution that you think about. <laughs> that exactly, yes. And uh, that, that's why I'm so excited, because I feel like the grassroots democracy movement is revving up and active. And there's this bridging movement also, which is building social cohesion uh, between people with different opinions, like uh, Braver Angels and the Listen First Project and efforts like this that are national in scope and lo- local and national. And they're actually doing that work that you describe. And I totally agree with you. And actually, step four of revolutionary optimism, uh, the seven steps, is about peacecrafting. And it's about learning how to be a good listener and understand that there are multiple points of view and treating each other with respect and building trust, actually, with people with different points of view so that we can generate uh, common sense solutions, which the majority want. It's the people on the extremes that don't want that, right? They want to maintain their control. Um, so I, I appreciate your, your perspective on that. And, uh, you know, let's play this out a little bit further. We have, uh, there's a lot of people that are writing and talking about, uh, and even Donald Trump himself has talked about, uh, suspending the constitution, being a dictator on day one. He has, uh, the heritage foundation published a report called project 2025, which is a blueprint for dismantling uh, the administrative state, which protects these rights. And also uh, they plan to take away a lot of the rights that people are now enjoying around uh, those issues that I mentioned earlier. So, uh, you know, there's different things that could happen. He could outright win the election. He could lose the election and then contest the result of the election. 
and he could spark political violence, um, either as uh, a failed candidate or even he could use violence as part of his uh, authoritarian uh, control of our country. So I, I laid out a lot of different scenarios there, and I'd love to hear you unpack that a little bit and and give us a sense of what's what might be possible depending on what scenario occurs. Great. Well, you might have to remind me of option two and three <laughs> down the road, but we'll get there. Yeah. Uh, so fortunately for the U.S. populace at this moment, the humanity has been dealing with these types of scenarios for ages. And mm. we've been responding to them with varieties of tactics, including violence, including civil wars, including counter coups, you know, and including nonviolent action. And we now know from empirical fact-based studies that nonviolent action is actually twice as successful as violent options in stopping these kind of things and getting rid of these kind of things. It's hmm. mind-blowing. But so, you know, that is one thing to think about is what are the tools that we're going to use? Um, and I personally prefer to use the most effective tools. When it comes to something like stopping a coup, there's some incredible examples of this, of how people have done this around the world. Before Hitler took power in Germany, there was a coup attempt uh, in 1920, and the people stopped it with a general strike to the point where the, the coup leaders wanted to print out pamphlets or uh, flyers banning all sorts of things, but they couldn't because there were no typists to type the things. No mimeograph peoples to run out the copies and nobody go put them up in the square. So this is how nonviolent struggle can be incredibly uh, potent in terms of denying uh, would-be dictators our um, cooperation and our consent. So as a populist, becoming familiar with stories like these, understanding how uh, the power of nonviolent action actually works to thwart uh, coups and dictatorships is very important. Um, I personally had a wonderful opportunity to be part of the 2020 uh, campaign that stopped Trump from stealing the election last time and got to have a, a fairly front row seat with some fellow organizers who come from this field of nonviolent struggle or civil resistance and have been watching these kind of campaigns all over the world. And, you know, I, I got to watch how we shored up democratic institutions, how we defended election officials from intimidations and threat that were aimed at getting them to fold or concede and not do their job. Um, I got to see how this campaign pressured major corporate media outlets to count every vote and to narrate the story of an election in which we're going to take the time to count those votes. Mm. Um, and how this created a condition in which when Trump said, oh, I won, people look, a lot of people looked at that and said, I don't think so. We don't necessarily even know yet, which undermined his credibility right from the beginning. Um, and this continued all the way up through January 6th, which was problematic enough, but without the effort of this campaign would have been, what if there were a million people literally in D.C., trying to pull off that insurrection? Mm. What if they had more armed groups who you had... You mean on January 6th, if they On really... January 6th, yeah. yeah. So um, 
I know it's not just historical examples from other countries. It's the fact that we actually have done this once before that should give us a little bit of hope. Now, I would say if Trump goes so far as to suspend the Constitution, that is a huge red flag for this populace. And we should be ready to mobilize and to shut down our country and non-cooperate and go on strike and to call upon our civil servants in every level of government to do the same, to stop someone from suspending the Constitution. There's no excuse for that in this scenario. Yeah. yeah, thank you. You said something really super important, um, which I want to highlight, which is that as I'm calling for a peaceful revolution, I'm not saying that the whole population has to be on the streets uh, fighting, you know, uh, or protesting or marching, although that would be welcome because studies do show we need at least like 3.5% or maybe 5% of the population, which is only like 15 million people or, you know, 15 to 18 million people. That seems doable, but the more important thing is what you said, I think, which is that the broader population is denying cooperation and consent, and they're doing uh, nonviolent resistance from their desktop or from their office or from the church or from the school or wherever they are. That is what I want people to understand, that uh, peaceful revolution isn't about uh, 300 million people on the street. You know, it's about a collective uh, red line saying we're not going to tolerate this. Right. And when we look at nonviolent struggle, it's very important to understand the distinction between those acts of protest and persuasion, which are powerful for many reasons, including alerting people to what's going on, showing that uh, your side has support and consensus of people, uh, delivering a clear message to power holders. But those alone are often not enough. And we need to draw on two other kind of categories of action, that of non-cooperation, like boycotts or strikes or stay-at-homes or call-in six or shutdowns, and that of intervention. And this is where we get in the way of injustice. So things like blockades, uh, certain types of shutdowns actually also fall in this category. Um, you know, stopping deliveries, um, going and making sure someone can't travel across a road. Uh, so uh, acts of civil disobedience where you lock down to things like pipeline defenders are doing. So when you know the whole toolbox of nonviolent action, and there are over 300 different types of actions, hmm. you understand that just as, you, as a hammer is different from a screwdriver is different from a saw, so too are the tools of nonviolent struggle. You can't use a saw to hammer in a, a nail. That's just not going to work. And you know what? If you try to use your screwdriver to cut a board, you're going to be there for a long time. Hmm. But if you want to build a house, you need all three. So we too, if we want to build a new society, we need all of the types of nonviolent action and we need to know how to use them mm -hmm. and when to use them and how. Fortunately, you can, like me, Google all this information at this point anyway and read all about it take a webinar, study up, and um, actually become quite a skillful agent of change at a time when it's not just our country, but humanity and the entire planet needs us to know these things. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, that's, that's what I'm committed to through this podcast and through my work is to expand the circle of people who understand 
the situation that we're in and the opportunity that we have for transformational, revolutionary uh, healing and repair of our broken systems. And I loved essay 18 in Rise and Resist, uh, which is called Impossible Courage. And it talks about the opportunity that we have to confront the impossible. So that's frequently what I'm, you know, challenged with. People say it's impossible to mobilize a national people's convention and have delegations that are authentically representative of constituencies across the country, both geographically and by all other intersectional constituency approaches that could be created. And then we could write a new social contract. People tell me that's impossible. I I think it's imminently possible and urgently needed, personally. It's an extra constitutional solution to the crisis. Most people are like willing to maybe talk about the provisions within the Constitution for transformation. Uh, but I think we need to go beyond that personally. So anyway, I love these questions that you included in this essay about the central questions about the strategies for waging nonviolent struggle. And I wanted to ask you these questions in the context of our situation here in the United States in 2024 and 2025. Do you follow the logic here? Okay, yeah. <laughs> You better read those questions. If you you looked at, I'm I'm asking you to take a, you know, kind of meta view of the movements as you understand them right now and the situation that we're in, and you know our quest for a love-centered, justice-based, authentic democracy versus what the oligarchy we have now. So, what are our strengths right now to be a to being able to achieve that? Hmm. Well, one of our strengths is that we actually have widespread discontent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it maybe doesn't always feel like a strength, but it actually is. A second strength is that we do have these uh, multi-pronged democracy m- movements that are, while fairly small at this point, have been increasing rapidly in our populace's understanding of how important they are. Think about social cohesion and reducing polarization as two specific examples. Mm. I think a third strength is that we still have fairly free access to information, which um, if you study global struggles, you don't take for granted. So I would really include encourage people to s- use this opportunity to find resistance groups and join them, to mm. find democracy groups and show up at a, a people-powered democracy um, process. Um, to be in communication with your friends and neighbors, to learn all that you can right now and be an ambassador of that knowledge to people who maybe are not as tuned in to this podcast or other things like it. Um, I would say also, in a strange way, the crises that we face are a strength in that they show us the urgency of this Mm. conversation. It is not a question mark on many of these issues, how fast we need to move. It is obvious and evident, and it should embolden us. It should give us courage. Mm. And things like the climate crisis with its profound question of revolutionizing our relationship to ecology in every aspect of our society and in our constitution, etc., should be a reminder of why we have to be realistic and demand the impossible. Okay, excellent. 
That was really inspiring. I love the way you rattled off those five things. Uh, now, to continue the inquiry per your book, what are our weaknesses? Mm. I think there are still a lot of people who would rather hang on to the old system mm. than explore the new. And the fear of abandoning what little political power each side of our duopoly thinks that they have through the political elites holds people back from being willing to seriously consider where they may find even greater power uh, among people that they may or may not agree with. Hmm. Um, I think that's a, a weakness. I think also with the compounding crises, there are a lot of people who are just trying to survive these crises mm -hmm. and don't have a lot of extra bandwidth so a weakness might be um, needing to be skillful at explaining the why of this change to people who may not have much time to take it in right. or the how of it to people who don't have uh, an hour to listen to a podcast even. And then another weakness is that our media apparatus is very controlled. We think <laughs> we have this wonderfully open internet and we have very siloed um, websites and a lot of political division among them. And then we have corporate media, uh, which really doesn't want us to be having these conversations. So we will be up against- Because they're part of the oligarchy. Right, yeah. And they want to protect the status quo. Right. Mm -hmm. So we will be up against that media propaganda machine with any major change that we want to see. Uh, so that that's daunting. Yeah. How can we wisely use our strengths to aggravate their weaknesses? Well, I would say that this discontent, these are the days of our discontents. Um, if we can tell a narrative about that near universal frustration that stops dividing our populace against itself and instead clearly puts the problem on the shoulders of those who have caused it, i.e. our political elites, that would be one way of using our, our strengths to, to exploit their weakness. <laughs> their weakness is that they're wrong, you know, that, that they have been abusing their power and refusing to use it on behalf of people and planet for far too long. Um, so truth is on our side. That's another strength. Mm. Um, and if we can use that to, instead of having them divide and conquer us, use it to heal, unite, and liberate all of us together. Yeah, so actually that's where I'm at. We need a social and political movement that does that because both of these, uh, the, the duopoly, they send out, like they, they pretend they're for people and planet on the one hand, and on the other hand, they like tap into uh, populist rage by activating fear and division. You know, so both of those camps are preventing uh, this, the third truth, you know, the, a, a social political movement that would stand for the people and build an authentic democracy. So that's the conundrum I think that we're in, in a way, but I'm excited. Cause I think that like what you said, all those strengths are really true. And the level of discontent, um, is so vast right now and increasing as we expect it will with the worsening crises. Uh, that maybe there's a spark of opportunity to to crash in through and and bring forward uh, a love-centered, peaceful revolution. 
Do you ever get despairing or overwhelmed with uh, hopelessness? And what do you do besides write a book or a poem uh, to uh, heal that part of yourself or to respond to that part of yourself? Mm, I think we all feel that from time to time to more or less degrees. I think what has been an enduring source of inspiration, even hope, is to really listen to stories from around the world. Here in our U.S. bubble, with our exceptionalism, we can think we're so unique. Like we are the only people who have ever faced political corruption or would-be dictators or coups or existential crises. But the reality is that our fellow human beings around the world have faced this over and over and over again. And this is why I edit Nonviolence News, is so that I can be in touch with these stories. People are so courageous. They are so brave. They are so willing to stand up for what's right, even when the odds seem so impossible. They make what we're facing right now look minuscule by comparison. And when you study history, along with current examples, you start to see that over and over again, people are succeeding. We've had 50 successful nonviolent revolutions in the last 40 years. Far more than that, actually. This is an older statistic. Uh, but yeah, when I remember those stories, it gives me the strength and the courage to meet our times. And the other thing that helps is to to toss out this myth that has circulated out of the consumer and capitalist society that we are born to be consumers of products, mm. to work and to amass nice things in our houses and then pass it on to our children. That's a myth. It's a lie. It's just one story about why we're here as human beings, and it's completely unworkable for these times. So I like to remind myself of what I believe, which is that we are here to be here in these times, to be transformational, to be revolutionary, to have the courage to meet this existential moment for the human species and to come out soaring on the other side. If we think of, the, of human history as one long story from the dawn of our existence, hopefully long, long into the future, this is the climax moment. This is the sink or swim moment. This is where the book either ends or keeps going in an infinite series into the future. Mm. And just like every good character on the page, why wouldn't we want to be here for these times? This is where the action is at. It is where the excitement is at. It is where the danger is at. And this is where the heroic moment, the heroic struggle is happening. And I'm so glad to be here right now. Well, thank you so much for those inspiring uh, messages and and your clarity of insight and uh, drawing on that global experience and bringing that forward here in our own country, the United States at this time. I think that is uh, truly admirable. And I just want to salute everything that you're up to and encourage uh, the li my listeners to go to riverasun.com to learn about your books and your poetry, and then nonviolentnudes.org, uh, which is the place where you can get all this information about nonviolent struggles happening around the world today and also the repository from the past. So 
Thank you, Rivera, for all you're up to. And I think uh, let's see what happens. This could be the year of the of the revolution, if if we're if we're lucky, the peaceful revolution. Thank you so much, Paul, for these important and vital conversations in these times. It warms my heart to know that you're in this world along with me. Well, thank you so much for listening to that amazing interview with Rivera Sun, author and activist, uh, an expert on nonviolent civil disobedience. Rivera Sun is without a doubt an extraordinary revolutionary optimist. She is an expert on nonviolent civil disobedience and nonviolent struggle. And she talked about amazing ways in which all of you, all of my listeners, can become involved in nonviolent action to create a better country and a better world. If we want to fight for our democracy, if we want to fight to address the climate emergency, if we want to fight for economic equality in our country and all the other rights that we care about, listening to Rivera Sun's wisdom is critically important. We need to learn from her about what she talked about was, uh, yes, we need to mobilize with protests, and that's a critical part of persuasion of policymakers and the public that a revolutionary transformation is possible. And we have other ways that we can do action. We can deny cooperation and deny consent with the way things are happening uh, if we are in a situation that we're dissatisfied with. Uh, she, Rivera gave us a lot of information about uh, the strengths of our movement and our ability to spark a peaceful revolution if and when the circumstances are ripe and ready for us to go. We are readying ourselves right now in light of what is coming. There could be cli climate catastrophe. There could be a coup. There could be a uh, political violence that's unleashed uh, in the coming year. And so uh, this uh, episode really excited me with optimism about what we can do to be ready if there is a flashpoint that would warrant a political revolution or a political mobilization. So Rivera Sun is a leader in our movement of revolutionary optimism. And please listen to her and check out her teachings, her writings, her poetry, and her information about nonviolent movements. Thank you and have a great day. Are you ready to be part of the revolution? To learn more about revolutionary optimism, please visit drpaulzeitz.org. To explore building movements, please visit unifymovements.org. If you like this show, be sure to follow on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Revolutionary Optimism, transforming the world one episode at a time.